This is the Senior Living Truth Series podcast, where we have candid conversations about complex issues facing today's mature adults. No sales pitch, only the truth. I'm Dr. Nikki Buckaloo. Welcome to the show. Somebody's alarm going off. That must mean it's 10 o'clock. That means we're right on time. Great. Welcome. I'm Nikki Buffaloo, and I'll be your moderator today. I know most of you, but I do see some new faces in the room. So if you're new to the group, raise your hand. All right, give them a round of applause for being here. All right, now, where's Jake? Jake? Where did he go? There he is. All right, so if you brought a guest today that's here for the first time, raise your hand. If you brought a guest and this is their first time here, raise your hand. Jake's got a gift card for you. Awesome. Yes. Very good, very good. And so if you bring a guest with you and they are here for the first time, you get a gift card. And if that person can negotiate with you to share the gift card, that's their responsibility. But we're giving it to you for helping us uh, put the word out about the truth series. So, all right, are we good? All right, how's the volume? Is it a little loud or is it good? It's good? For Mr. Shirley, it's perfect. All right, good. Okay, I hear music. That's, okay, that's, where's the music coming from? So if you see Kathleen running around with an iPhone, uh, just give her a little wave or smile at her. You know, stick out your tongue, whatever you do. Uh, but we just we want we want people to know how much fun we have here and how many people are learning each and every month with us. So thanks for that. And then we also let's see, um, any other housekeeping that I have that I've missed? Nope. Okay, perfect. So I'm not going to take a lot of time today before I bring our panel up because this topic is really important. I want to mention to you, I'm, I'm a little, a little staticky. It's a okay. Turn it. it it's my breathing. Stop breathing. Oh my gosh. Okay, you guys made me laugh. Okay, so. The, the reason for this topic, let me just share with you, the reason for this topic, we didn't do it last year, we did something called downsizing with dementia last year. And it was more about relocation related to dementia issues or memory issues. And so this, this particular topic, someone asked us to do, or several people asked us to do, because there were, there were questions about, we know what dementia is, we think, and 
What we really don't know is what to expect if someone in our life is diagnosed with dementia or if we ourselves are struggling with questions about it. So today is not a medical conversation as much as it is an experiential conversation. But the good news is we do have a medical doctor who's going to be on our panel, so he can answer those technical questions as well. So um, I'm excited to bring up our panel. So with Dr. Smith and Mr. Herb Magley and Carla Skull, come on up. Give them a round of applause. Situated. While they're getting situated, turn to your neighbor and say, you're going to learn something today. <laughs> now, turn back to that same neighbor and tell them, and you're going to remember it. folks to you um, from my perspective and tell you why they're here. Uh, let me get my little thing up here so you can see the pictures. If you don't see them real close up here. So on, on our left up here we have Dr. Smith. He is with the Mercy Neuroscience Institute. Is that correct? Yes, Neuroscience Institute. Um, Dr. Smith was a neurosurgeon, is a neurosurgeon. He just doesn't use his knife and scalpel as much anymore, right? And so now he is the Mercy Foundation Physical Liaison, Physician Liaison, pardon me, and he also serves as a volunteer physician at the Crossings Community Clinic, I think one day a week or two or, yeah, so it's these patients still. Yeah, all right. And you may, those may not be on yet. So you're good, okay. And so uh, we know Dr. Smith uh, from previous, he's spoken for us previously. He does talks around the city as well on stroke prevention and uh, other educational topics. So anytime you see his name come out for uh, an educational event, I recommend you sign up because he's, he's brilliant. Today you're only going to get a little bit, of, little bit of his brilliance and he'll share others at other seminars. So, And then Herb, our equally magnificent male on the panel. It's rare that we have two males and one female on the panel. We usually are heavy with women, so you guys are special today. Thank you for that. Right? You've been called special a lot, I know, right? Yeah. So uh, Herb is a, a former geologist and worked for Devon, I understand, right? For 20 some odd years? Yeah. Uh, well, I worked for the predecessor. Okay. Uh, and we got bought out. I was with him 27 years and then 13. Yeah. So he's big into rocks and things, as I understand, right? Okay. And so, but, you know, Herb, Herb also, now that you're retired, right? He doesn't act like he's retired. He speaks all over the place about issues related to dementia because he was a caregiver for his wife who had um, early onset dementia or young onset dementia. And she passed in 2019, is that correct? Uh, 2015. 2015, excuse me, yeah. And so Herb is, uh, he's become an advocate for caregivers and people living with dementia. So we're excited to have him. Um, he's a great speaker. He and Dr. Smith are both used to standing on their feet and doing these presentations. So I appreciate you guys being on a panel. And then Carla, I've uh, gotten to know through Concordia, who is one of our education partners. And Carla is over the memory care and assisted living at Concordia Life Care Community. 
and uh, but has an extensive background with Sunbeam Family Services, the Oklahoma Alzheimer's Association. She's worked in senior living for many years, and so she comes at it from uh, an education perspective and a senior living perspective, and also a caregiver advocacy perspective. So we got some uh, a breadth of knowledge here on the panel today. Are you guys ready? Yeah? Is there anything anybody else needs to know about you before we start? Any disclaimers? No? Okay. All right. We're all very shy. They're all very shy. I'm really worried about that. Yeah. Okay. Now, we also, those of you, may, you may have seen the ad that we ran. Uh, we had another panelist who was slated for today, Diane Wood, uh, who is also an amazing advocate and caregiver advocate, uh, and she could not be here today. So if you're wondering where she is, she had a conflict, and so she wasn't able to make it, but um, she contributed a lot to today's material, so we appreciate her as well. All right. Let's dive in. So, guys, first question that you were, uh, you know, kind of tasked with is, what is dementia? Um, yeah, that's the big question, right? We hear dementia and Alzheimer's, and we hear uh, these words tossed around. So let's define it. Um, who'd like to start with that? Dr. Schmidt? I guess yeah. everybody's looking at me. So yeah. Go for Right. Yeah, so it is a pleasure to be here and to speak with everybody this morning. And certainly the panel is great, and we'll hopefully give you a comprehensive uh, Oh, a picture of what dementia and, and all the ramifications of it. But dementia basically is an impairment in our recent memory and an impairment in our ability to carry on complex functions of life. We call that medically our brain executive function. So it's basically that impairment of, of recent memory. I like to think of it as we all have computers, or at least we have iPhones and that sort of thing. We have a RAM memory in it. And the RAM memory allows us to access the, the uh, hard drive where all of our memory is stored. So if our RAM memory goes down, we can't access the hard drive. There's a little part of our brain called the hippocampus. It's our, we just think of that as our RAM memory and that accesses all of our memory. So if that goes down, we can't access it. A lot of it's there because as we impair it, our memory is impaired, our recent memory, we can remember things from 50 years ago pretty darn well. But we can't remember what we had for breakfast. We can't remember where we're going. We can't remember to take things off the stove. So that's basically the overall uh, awareness of what dementia is. Think of it in computer terms. Okay, so there's a dilemma though, because you know we say people say, oh, somebody has Alzheimer's. Well, they may or may not, because there's there's these other kinds. So can you talk about what's the difference between, and maybe not all the technical differences, but. What are the different kinds? Right. The, when we speak of dementia, that's just what I talked about. There are many, many kinds of dementia. <laughs> Alzheimer's is a part of the overall spectrum of dementia, but it's not the majority. It's, but it, there are many people that have it, obviously, but the majority would be other forms of dementia. Many times we don't know why it happens, except it's associated with aging. We all age, obviously. It's a consequence of aging. Our body does age, our skin sags, thins out, our organs begin to sag, our brain begins to wither some. We all have it, it's called atrophy. But not everybody that has atrophy or a brain shrinkage over years has dementia. So there are all sorts of uh, dementias. There's metabolic, there's the type, if you have low blood sugar, if you have high blood pressure, if you have lipid disorders where you have too much cholesterol, you're not taking your, your statin drugs, all those things can play into your brain malfunctioning because of vascular problems from high blood pressure, from damage from diabetes, 
damage from high, high cholesterol, that kind of thing. There's a huge spectrum that causes dementia. You just described to me. Right. <laughs> Actually, if we age, all of us experience some of that. Now, um, I've been told or read that some people, when they pass away, uh, have been had had autopsies on their brain and whatnot, and there have been signs of dementia, what you would refer to as dementia, but the person never had symptoms. Um, is that a fair statement? Well, yeah, there are abnormalities of the brain that we see on MRI, for instance, and we used to call them UBOs, unidentified bright, unidentified bright optics, because they were deep in the brain. We didn't know what they were. And they turned out to be, as, as we found out, tiny little strokes that happen from just the things I've just mentioned, primary vascular disease. But those things uh, aren't always causing dementia. We all have experiences with, as we age that, gosh, we can't recall that name. I know that person. I just saw him a few days ago, and I can't remember their name. That's pretty common. And we sometimes have forgetfulness. But that doesn't mean we have dementia. It just means we have mild cognitive impairment. That's what we doctors call it. But it's very normal, and we can get around and function with that. Our executive function is fine. So we see things uh, on MRIs and tests and uh, actually studying the brain tissue after death uh, that that can be related to brain abnormalities, but the patient may function perfectly normal. I'm gonna hope that's the case with me. I'm gonna function perfectly normal, and you're gonna get inside my brain and go, wow, that's really ugly, but she, how'd she do it? Right. <laughs> you're, you're right, you're exactly <laughs> All right, I just assume you stay out of my brain, by the way, if you don't mind. Right. Uh, it's a scary place in there, as they say. So, uh, Herb, you and Carla have worked in with caregivers for many years, uh, Dr. Smith with patients for many years, and uh, how long can someone live with dementia, um, like longevity-wise? Talk about that a little bit. Well, it, I've run a bunch of support groups. I've started 10 here in Oklahoma City. I've seen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of caregivers and people who have had the disease. Uh, we've had one person that went through the entire process from uh, the early stage to the late stage in 12 months. Uh, every time they came to support group, because we have support groups where the caregiver brings their loved one, it was amazing to, to see the change just in two weeks. Uh, we've had others that have gone uh, you know, as long as 20 years. Uh, we have one gentleman that was diagnosed 15 years ago, and he and I go around town doing what I call Mutt and Jeff talks. He'll talk about having the disease for, he's supposed to do 30 minutes, and then I'm supposed to tell what it's like to be the caregiver. A lot of times I don't even get to talk, because you all find it so interesting to be able to ask somebody that has this disease, you know, what, what do you feel, what bothers you, those types of things. So he'll go the whole, you know, we'll be 55 minutes into it, and he'll look over at me and he says, isn't it about time for you to go? And I said, yeah, in about five minutes I'm leaving. So, uh, but. It's most of them, you know, with my wife, she was diagnosed at 54, and we went on an 11-year journey. And uh, as a result of that, I decided that I was going to dedicate the rest of my life to caregivers, because caregivers are the other victim in this disease. Uh, and the, uh, as we will get onto later, you'll find out how tough it can be uh, on the caregiver. Um, so I'm all about them. You know, we try to get them into support groups and, and help with that. But anyway, that's the yeah. So the I'm, gonna, answer. I'm gonna ask Carla a question. I'm gonna circle back to the support group thing. Carla, from the senior living and from being in the Alzheimer's Association for many years as well, um, 
when you see someone move into a residential care setting, um, what phase of life are they usually in? How, how long might they live in a memory care setting? Oh, well, goodness, that, that varies greatly. Uh, it depends on at what stage of the disease they decide to bring them into a memory care community. Uh, a lot of people see the signs early and, and want to get them in there early. Usually most people wait for several years until the caregivers kind of at the end of their rope and at the end of their skill set and it's like I need to take let the professionals take over now because I've done all I can do and, and we're both worn out. So it, it varies and nobody goes through this disease the same way just like Herb was saying you know anywhere from 12 months to 20 oh, years. That's so right. I got it. we just you just don't know. There's no, uh, there's no set. It's not like you're, oh, you're going to be in the early stage for this amount of time, and then you're going to be in the middle stage for this amount of time, and then the late stage. People go through it differently. Some people stay like like Herb's friend. He stays in the, I would say, late early stage, for years. And some people zip right through it really quickly. We just don't know. So when when caregivers ask us that question, you know, how long do you think? We really have no idea. It just depends on the individual. And that's one reason why when, you, when you're looking for a, uh, a community for memory support, you know, you want to ask them, do you give personalized care? Do you treat the person or do you treat the masses? And, and you always want, you know, a place that does person-centered care. Because everybody's so individual. Because everybody's different. And so not everybody wants to take a shower at 7 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you know, it's got to make sense to the person. Yeah. Hold that thought. Sure. So I'm going to circle back to that. Um, before I forget, there's your glasses. Before I forget, Herb, you mentioned the, the Mutt and Jeff uh, talks that y'all do. Uh, where, if people were to want to go to one of those, I, I always say this is a big picture overview of the topic. But then, those of you who want to get really deep into it, make uh, make an effort. Where would they find that particular kind of talk? We do it uh, basically on demand. Uh, a lot of the uh, communities, uh, you know, the retirement communities and that sort of thing, ask us occasionally to come out. Churches, uh, that sort of thing. So if you're interested in it, uh, set I would it say get, yeah, get with whatever group you're with and, and have us come out. And it's an interesting. It's an interesting talk. I don't usually come as myself. I usually wear a costume. So uh, I went to a pickleball tournament one time dressed up as a pickle. I said, oh, I guess I misunderstood what this one's all about. So I try to have fun. I, as you can tell, I'm all about humor. I try to make my... Why didn't you wear that today? That's what I was going to say. I'm disappointed. I know. You know, if you ever go to any of the health fairs around town, you probably see me walking around in a purple shark costume or a purple yeah. horse. Or That's what, okay, now I understand. Okay, it's all coming together for me now. All right, so let's talk about signs and symptoms. I think, uh, you know, Dr. Smith, you alluded to it earlier that you know, things happen and we begin to question, right? Especially if maybe we had a parent or somebody in our family that had dementia, we might go, oh my gosh, this is the beginning of of the disease for me. What are some of the signs and symptoms that stand out the most to you guys that people should really pay attention to? Uh, the, the, at least the patients that I see that obviously the family brings an individual to the doctor and that's very important because if the physician doesn't have the family in the room when the patient comes in, 
the individual who you're seeing can't remember anything that you've said. So it's really important. And the, usually the families will tell me, uh, you know, memory is not good. Uh, a lot of mistakes are being made. Uh, personal hygiene is not what it used to be. Uh, occasionally getting lost driving. Uh, not able to, uh, as Herb may say a little later, not reading books anymore, maybe watching more TV. There's just a behavioral change that's of concern to the family. And the individual may not be aware. And then many times that individual is resistant to uh, receiving any news like that, that their, their memory is not what, it, what they want it to be. So mainly it's a behavioral change, sleep pattern changes, getting maybe lost driving, as I say, leaving stuff on the stove and burning it and not realizing it, losing keys, not remembering names, all kinds of major behavioral changes. That's the thing that precipitates a, a visit to the doctor. Okay. And Herb, you mentioned your wife. Uh, kind of talk about what you guys noticed uh, as she began to to live with that disease. Yeah, we had just moved up here from uh, Houston, and so we really didn't have a, a great support group set up yet. Uh, and she had, obviously hadn't been diagnosed. But the one thing that I've learned through all the people that I've seen in, in support groups uh, is it, there's something that's radically changed that's been there for years. For instance, my wife was uh, an avid speed reader. She would, uh, for the 35 years before she got diagnosed, she would read two to three books a week, every week. And all of a sudden, she never watched TV. And all of a sudden, it switched. She quit reading books and she started watching TV. And she was a, a speech pathologist. It took her two years to find a job up here. And she was down at the Crooked Oak School System and she really liked it. But she came home in May of the first year after she'd been there. She said, I'm, I'm not going to renew my contract. And I said, why? I thought you liked this job. She said, I, I do, but I can't do the paperwork anymore. So those are the things you look for. You know, there's, it, it's like if somebody's always been bad in math and they still can't, you know, balance a checkbook, you know, then that's not a, that's not a sign. But if they've always been meticulous in taking care of their checkbooks and all of a sudden they can't balance it anymore, you know, that's something to pay attention to. You want to talk about the 10 signs? Yeah, so the, the slide that we have up there now is the, the 10 signs of memory loss. So, um, you know, just kind of have a look at that. It's, it's not there to be alarming. It's just there to uh, just kind of some things to be watching out for. A lot of times I'll ask people, I'll say, well, you know, when, when was your loved one diagnosed with dementia of whatever kind? And they'll say, oh, they were diagnosed in 2018. And, I, and I'm like, but how long have you been seeing symptoms? Because there's a big difference. And, and there's not a definitive diagnosis point. That's when it started. And Dr. Schmidt, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the way I understand it is that this disease starts decades before we ever see the symptoms. The destruction to the brain is happening if it's, if it's Alzheimer's or that type of dementia can start you know, decades before we ever see the symptoms of the disease. So, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of some good things there to watch out for. I always used to tell people that, like, like Dr. Smith was saying, we all have memory problems as we get older. I've had them all my life, so I can't even blame it on age. But I always tell people that if you remember you forgot, you're doing okay. It's when you don't even know that you've forgotten something that you might want to go, you know, have it checked out. Because yeah. memory, memory uh, issues are, there could be a variety of reasons. Uh, 
Who you know, knows? Chris's uh, grandparents uh, are a great example of some people that we had no idea his grandmother had dementia. Um, he, his, his grandfather did such a great job of covering it up. Um, he was 91, and she was uh, quite a bit younger. How much younger, Chris, was she? I don't know. 12 years, 12 years younger. Thank you, Wanda. Uh, that's my mother-in-law, by the way. So <laughs> her, that's her mom I'm talking about. Um, and so when uh, when he passed, he had an accident. He hit, hit, fell and hit his head on a step and developed a hematoma and then passed. And uh, she still lived in the home. And they, she was supposed to come to our house uh, for Thanksgiving, I believe it was, and couldn't find her way. And she had been the, you know, the driver for so long, but he was the navigator. And without him as the navigator, she couldn't make her way to our house. And that was kind of like the first question mark, what happened? And so then little things then started, we started noticing other things, right? Paranoia set in, and uh, that was a big thing. I didn't see that on your list, I don't think. Um, it was like, you know, all of a sudden she thought that my sister-in-law, uh, our sister-in-law was stealing from her. And we knew that that wasn't the case. She was a primary caregiver. But those were just some signs that we noticed. So like you said, changes, right, drastic changes. So let's talk about when you notice that um, happening. And you say, okay, this is the first time we see the person comes into the doctor's office. What can you expect from the diagnosis process. This is one thing a lot of people don't know about. How long did you say it took her before your wife was actually diagnosed? Um, uh, it took, you get your own microphone. <laughs> <laughs> You're the specialist here. We're just winging it. Uh, yeah, what was the question? Oh, yeah. uh, we, it took us two years to get a diagnosis. When we first went in, they said she was 52, and they said uh, it, uh, you know, it's, it's probably uh, depression. And, and the, the neurologist that we went to dealt mostly with depression. And uh, I said, well, you know, I don't think she's depressed. I think she's going to be depressed when you tell her what it is because we had gone through this with her, with her dad. So we went through a year with, the, with that until he finally realized that it was not diagnosed. And then we went in and did the neuropsych testing because he figured, well, maybe there was something organic going on here. And uh, at that point in time, what we went through, there weren't the scans and that kind of stuff available that, that there are today. It was, well, let's pick out the things that have symptoms, the same symptoms as Alzheimer's, and remove those from the equation. So I've got so, that list up there. Those yeah, so yeah. Yeah, Lyme disease, uh, untreated HIV AIDS, there's vitamin deficiencies. They did a spinal tap to see if there was any brain infection. So once a month for 12 months, we went in. And finally, we got to the end of it, and what was left was, was Alzheimer's. So, Dr. Smith, uh, from a medical perspective, you mentioned when we were talking in preparation for this that there's like a, a, a where, you, where you try to say, okay, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, and then you filter it down, kind of like what Herb described. What does that look like? Yeah, that's what we call a differential diagnosis. And one thing I've learned over the years, never assume it's de depression. Ever. That's the last thing you want to. I wish we knew you before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because when we don't know what's wrong, we sometimes say that, and it frequently comes back to uh, be an incorrect diagnosis. I've just past month I've had that happen to a patient that had a, had a brain tumor. So you really have to be cautious. But in answer to that question, um, 
if I understood the question correctly, uh, that you want. How do you as a medical doctor do the differential diagnosis? Yeah. It's a, a good history from the family, and that progression is important. It can be slow or rapid. Uh, the major changes that we've just discussed. Then we do a careful neurological examination. Sometimes it doesn't show anything. Then if the symptoms that are related to you from the family, you get, you get an MRI, not a CT scan, but an MRI. And then you check uh, blood sugar, obviously, you check uh, blood pressure, you check lipids, you check what we call metabolic things. It's really amazing the number of patients we see with bladder infections that come in with a total personality change over the next, over the past few weeks or maybe a few months, and they're totally different. They sometimes can even present as a stroke and they've got a bladder infection that produces a toxicity that you never want to overlook that. But bladder, low sodium, low thyroid, I mean, those are all treatable disorders that you want to make sure that you're not overlooking. And then you do progress with the MRI and make sure there's not something wrong like a blood clot, tumors, that kind of thing, strokes, that sort of thing. So all of this takes place in about a week or two, right? Well, it depends on, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you would say, well, gosh, that takes forever. But a, a, a neurologist that's well attuned to doing this, it can be, once you get the appointment, that's the problem. <laughs> but once you get that done, then the, it's a pretty straightforward, call it a dementia workup. And then once all that's in and you don't really have a clear uh, course to take, then, as Herb said, you go to the uh, neuropsychologist. They're very good at quantitating what's wrong and what can be done to help that. It's a process, but it's a very orderly process, at least in the field of neurology it is. So I get my experience with the testing, because I worked in the hospital for a while in the psych unit, right, before I decided that that was not my field uh, that I should be in. But I, I, what I noticed was that um, it was like they go and they have testing and then it would take a while for the, the psychologist even to write up the report, right? Then they schedule an appointment to go over the report and then they decide what's next, right? And so there could be a gap in a couple, three weeks in between each one of those tests. Is that still the case? Still is. We have very few neuropsychologists um, here in Oklahoma City. The only one that we refer to now is at OU. And it takes a long time to get the appointment, it can be a year. So um, it's, just, it's just the way it is. And it, uh, in the meantime, then that's when the support groups, that's when uh, individuals, caregivers, with compassion for the individual begins to, to help. And it's mainly you've just got to recognize it and get organized whether the neuropsychologist has seen this or not. You know, you basically know the diagnosis. You know something is wrong. And here's what you can do to improve it. If there's nothing medically that can be done to improve it. Wow, I heard the whole audience go, oh, when he said a year, right? So I'm going to ask the question because this is what's going through my mind. Should we go elsewhere? I mean, if you can't get an appointment here, does it make sense for someone to go outside of the area to a specialist at the Mayo Clinic or somewhere else, or does that really make a difference in your mind? Yeah, that is a possibility. There's Mayo, there's uh, uh, the Barrow Institute in Phoenix. <coughs> Excuse me, it's very good. Uh, there's UCLA, there's places all over the country that have neuropsychology. They're usually academic centers. And yeah, if you have the means to do that, sure, if you can expedite the process. But even though you say you don't have the means, you can still 
still begin the caregiving that these individuals need. And the thing that I've seen, I'm sure you've all seen the same thing, that the individual who is affected by this often is in pretty severe denial and they will not accept things that are offered to them. So you got to work through that as well. Okay, that's a as, perfect segue. As are, yeah. the, as are the caregivers. I mean, yeah. we're in denial too. Yeah, so talk about that because in the prep call, let me just bring this up and if you want to talk about it first, you can. If not, that's fine. But in the prep call that we did, just to kind of flush out the issues, Diane brought up the fact that because people are in denial, they oftentimes don't do some of the things they need to do, like legal paperwork and stuff like that. So we kind of speak to that issue of early diagnosis, some things people might want to put in place. Uh, I will, and then you can do some of this, too. All right. Um, She's my hero. Can you, can you tell that? I keep talking to her. Uh, she taught him everything he knows, but we're just giving him the knowledge. Just and, and I'm in awe of, of Dr. Smith it's, here. What do you call it? The I've, mutual, mutual uh, admiration yeah. fan club up here. Yeah. And I, too, prefer to stand up, but when I stand up, I get shorter. <laughs> I'm not like him. I wouldn't be able to sing him, so that's why I'm staying seated. Foot that, neither one works if I stand <laughs> Okay, so what did you want me to talk about? <laughs> but it was a good topic. And you really should hear it. What are the things that people should do early on in the yeah. diagnosis process? Um, yeah. You know, one thing that I run into in, in the support group, and again, we have early stage folks that, that get into that, and this is, this is odd because of the way this disease progresses, uh, a lot of the caregivers think they've got this. You know, you're in mild cognitive impairment, you're in the early stages, you're going through several years here, where there's not much difference. You know, sometimes the person that has the disease is still uh, driving, they're still working, you know, and they're still functioning pretty high, and you think, I got this. Uh, so the problem comes when you get to the middle stage and things start going haywire. So, uh, and, and we'll talk about that uh, in a little bit. But if you get to this early stage and you understand what's going on, there's a lot of things that you need to be doing together. Uh, you need to be discussing what you want done. You need to have a, a, your medical directive set up. You need to have your power of attorney set up. Uh, why? Tell why, yeah, because when you get on with this disease, you're not going to be able to get that very easily because they're going to be compromised. And, you know, you go into your attorney and it's like, eh, you know, they're not capable of signing this. So then you end up in the court system and that sort of thing. And you, it, it just elongates everything. Uh, yeah. So I'll tell you a story that, that I always think about all the time. So we had this woman that came into the Alzheimer's Association. She came in for a care consultation with a work colleague of ours. And uh, it was a second marriage for she and her husband. So the house was in his name. They hadn't gotten their ducks in a row. He got dementia. He was not capable of signing paperwork anymore. She was not his POA. She needed to sell the house in order to pay for his care. She couldn't sell the house because it was in his name and not hers, and he couldn't sign the paperwork that said she's got my permission to sell the house because his brain was compromised. And so she had to go to court to get guardianship for her husband so she could sell the house to pay for his care. And going to court, there's two things that caregivers don't usually have enough of, and that's time and money. And it took her a lot of time and a lot of money 
Whereas if you'd had your ducks in a row from the beginning, as we all should by the time we're 18 years old, we should have our ducks in a row. Because none of us know when we're going to go out and bonk our head and not be able to sign that paperwork anymore. But we put it off because, my goodness, that means you've got to go somewhere and do something and talk to people and yeah, put clothes on, you know? <laughs> Nobody really wants to do that. So get your ducks in a row. It will pay off later on, and it's not hard to do. Yeah. You know, a lot of people have heard our, we have an education partner here, you guys may not know, her name's Jennifer Wright, and she's back here. You know, when she, uh, when we did our last panel on retirement planning, we talked about, you know, all the things that need to be put into place in case someone is incapacitated. Um, and it's, it never ceases to amaze me how people say, we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do it. Two or three, four years will go by. And what you said about that person progressing in a year, uh, so fast that they pass in a year, I thought, oh my gosh, because I think people think even with an early diagnosis, they'll still have time. But what you're saying is do it early, as early as possible, if you don't already have it done. Yeah. You know, and you're so, you're so involved in the emotional aspects of this, right. too, that you just never think about the, the, right. the legal. That, that's legal. just not in your, in your realm of thinking at that point in time. And that's why when you come to a support group, that's what we're going to tell you, you know, go get your paperwork done. So let's talk about caregivers for a second. Um, you mentioned denial. What are some of the emotions that you go through as you first learn about this diagnosis, as a caregiver or maybe as the patient? Well, what I, about you? Me? Yeah, I mean, she was 52, so that's got to be a yeah. hard pill to swallow anyway because of just that not expecting it. But it doesn't matter if you're 52 or 82, I don't think, yeah. does it? And I'll, and I'll tell you that, you know, there's a stigma attached to this disease. You don't want to use the A word and you don't want to use the D word. So uh, when I went around, first of all, there was a denial. She was going through menopause at about that time. And I said, oh, it's probably just a chemical imbalance. You know, this thing's going to work out. And, uh, you know, the further it went along, the further I went from the start, but it, it really probably wasn't that. But I, when we got the diagnosis, I didn't tell anybody she had Alzheimer's or dementia. I just said she had a terminal brain disease. I wasn't going to say Alzheimer's. I wasn't going to say dementia. And, uh, you know, there's just, people just kind of back away when you do that. And, you know, it's, it's getting better. I mean, we are, it's, it's out in the public a little bit more. And we are doing some things about this. So it's not maybe as bad as it was that I perceived it to be. But uh, yeah, I, I see the denial every day with the people who have the disease and the caregiver. Uh, and I understand it. Uh, here's, here's the scary part for the, for the doctor, not this one, but the Alzheimer's Association found out that, that only 50% of the people who have the diagnosis of it have ever been given the diagnosis by the doctor. Really? 50%. What is that about? They don't want to give the death sentence. So it's just kind of like a cancer doctor who doesn't want to give up and just keeps treating it regardless yeah. of the I mean, it's prognosis. A, it's a scary situation. You know, that those people probably never make it to the neurologist to start off with. Talk about that. So, I mean, what, what we saw a lot of was, was kind of the opposite of that because most diseases, heart disease, cancer, stuff like that, you can do something about it. So the doctor would jump all over it. Oh man, they've got tests, they've got things, they've got medications, that this, that, the other. You get a diagnosis of Alzheimer's and they're like, okay, bye. Because there's nothing else they can do. And that's why we work so closely 
with, with doctor's offices and clinics and places, all right, you've given them this diagnosis. We understand that at this point in time, there's not a whole lot else that the neurologists themselves can do, but please send them to the Alzheimer's Association because there's so much that you can do beyond that diagnosis. So yeah, they don't like to give that diagnosis because doctors like to fix things. Yeah. It's well, kind of unfixable. I might speak to that. Yeah. The thing that I've seen is that if, uh, if you're too straightforward with the patient, and if you were to tell them you've got Alzheimer's, it's a disaster. It, it, it's a disaster for the family, it's a disaster for the patient. The denial then gets absolutely out of control, at least in my experience. So I think what the physician should do, that's what I would always try to do, is speak to the memory impairment, begin to facilitate the patient and the family going to the Alzheimer's Association, going to other support groups. How do you manage your, your memory decline? How do we do that? And then finally the diagnosis kind of sinks in, but the, the understanding and the acceptance of that diagnosis seems to be easier. But if, if I'm too blunt, then it's such an upsetting diagnosis that it kind of defeats uh, the, the caregiving for the patient. Some people just withdraw and just absolutely close the blinds and think they're gonna die tomorrow. And then that's an extreme yeah. example, but it's, it's that's what I've experienced. You so, do kind of go to the end stage on this. I mean, that's what happened when Gail got diagnosed. We, we knew what it looked like when they're dead, and that's where you go. And uh, what the guy that I told did that we do the mutton Jeff talks with, uh, the doctor basically told him that uh, within seven years he would be in a memory care unit and probably would be gone within eight. And uh, he's 15 years down the road and still. Uh, as a matter of fact, when we do our talks, it's hard to tell which one of us has dementia. <laughs> <laughs> and I think another important thing for doctors, never say how long a person might exist, how, might, how long they live, how long the disease is going to go, because you don't know. There's too many variables. So the main thing we can do on the medical side, and obviously the support side, is give not only the patient, but the family hope. The worst thing that I see is compassion fatigue on the caregiver side. That's really, I mean, that's a very common thing. There has to be, there has to be a recognition of that. On the call the other day, Diane made a comment and I, and I, I made a note of it. She said, embrace what she called the therapeutic fib. Embrace the therapeutic fib. We love the therapeutic fib. Talk about that, Carla. What is that? Well, if you don't mind, I wanted to go with sure. one little point that Herb made about why you didn't tell your friends, why you didn't call it Alzheimer's, because friends do go away. It's hard. It's hard to go in and see your friend declining. I would love to teach a class on how to be a good friend to somebody that has Alzheimer's because they disappear and it's scary. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen to friends of mine. So I want to challenge you to something. If you live in a retirement community, go to memory support and volunteer for a day. Just make that a habit. Go be a friend. Go be a friend back there. If you have friends in your neighborhood that might have this disease, go be a friend. They need you. I'm serious. And you know, there is training out there for this. It's interesting uh, that we're having this conversation. I've, there's a lady that I follow. Her name is Teepa Snow. Oh Go to Teepa Snow's website. Yeah. You will right. not regret it. T-E-E-P-A. T-E-E-P-A. T -E -E 
APA Snow is her last name. And she's not from here, but she does trainings on this. And she actually does a number of certifications. And I, I'm looking into getting it myself, not because I want to be a dementia specialist, but because in our real estate practice, we deal with it all the time. And I want us to be able to be effective and appropriate for the people that we're serving. And so I think any consumer can do that, anybody, whether they're dealing with it or not, yeah. She's marvelous. Go to her website, she's hilarious. got, she's hilarious. She's come here to town to speak before. And if you ever go see her, you should, but don't sit on the front row. She will pick on you, you and especially if you're a man. She is ruthless, she is hilarious. She came, she came to town one time and we invited 30 caregivers to the Alzheimer's office to, to hear Chief the Snow. And she was doing a, a big, you know, two-day speechy thingy down there. And so I went and picked her up down at Children's Hospital because that's where she was doing it, down in the basement down there. And I brought her to the Alzheimer's Association because we were just going to have a Q&A with her for 30 minutes with these 30 caregivers. So we get in there, and I'm all excited, you know, and all my bosses are out there in the crowd. We've got these caregivers out there. And I'm like, and I'd like to introduce you to Tifa Snow, you know, and she's wonderful. She's just this dementia guru. And she goes off on me like a person that is severely in dementia. And I'm looking at her like, what are you doing? <laughs> and she's like, I'm Tifa Snow. You know, she's mocking me and she's being naughty and she's having all these behaviors. And I'm like, what are you doing to me? <laughs> Why are you doing this to me? I'm screaming all my people. You know? <laughs> She was hilarious, but that was just, that is her way. She teaches by example. She teaches yeah. by example. She is marvelous. She is teeny tiny. Uh, she's probably about my age. She's a little spitfire. She swears like a sailor, so be prepared for all of that. But go and see her stuff because she is good. And go to her yeah. website because you will find a lot of good stuff there. So but now, talking about that therapeutic fib, which yeah. she's a big believer in, by the way. So we're all taught we're not supposed to lie, right? But we all lie, right? I know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> she's just lying. Yeah, she's lying. Maybe a little, but there you go. So, therapeutic fib. Therapeutic means good for you, right? So it's a good for you fib. An example of that is if you're dealing with somebody that has dementia and they've forgotten that a loved one died. Because like Dr. Smith talked about, a lot of times the short-term memories are first to go because of the hippocampus being destroyed. So they forgot a loved one died. And you go in and you say, hey, Mom, how you doing? Well, fine, I'm just waiting on Dad. Well, maybe Dad's been gone for quite a while. And we tell her, oh, Mom, how many times do I have to tell you Dad's died? Now, we talked about this yesterday. I don't want to have to tell you again. It makes me sad when you bring that up because dad died and you know that. Well, she doesn't know that or she wouldn't have brought it up. She can't help it. She can't remember. It's not her fault. Please remember that. The minute, the minute a person is diagnosed with dementia, anything they say, do, behaviors, all of that is no longer their fault. They have a disease that has control of their brain now and they don't. So a therapeutic fit comes in really handy. Well, I'm just looking for dad, but you know what? He said he was gonna be a little late. He had a meeting that went long. He's gonna come here later, but let's go ahead and have dinner. He said for us to just go ahead and eat without him. Okay. So she's happy instead of sad. We know what happens when we tell her that daddy died, 
And why don't she remember that? Is we throw her back into that day that was probably the worst day of her entire life, and we're going to do that to her over and over and over and over again. Let's let's be fibbers. Let's tell her something that's good for her. Let's tell her something that makes her feel good instead of making her feel bad. No harm done. Okay, so this to me is a perfect example of what somebody to take away from the caregiver support groups, right? So if you're not really sure how to handle those things and you're in a caregiver support group, you guys are teaching these strategies, right, on how to do that. Well, those of us that know how to fib, we can teach people how to fib. I've been a fibber my whole life, just ask my parents. Yeah, I might make a sure. comment. When I was saying you didn't actually confront the patient and the family, I call those facilitatory, facilitatory uh, comments. In other words, if, if the, the individual will not remember that the spouse has died, I mean, you can't argue with them. You just say, well, just exactly what uh, Carla said. Uh, you, you facilitate the conversation without conf confronting them with the reality. And that's not necessarily lying to them, but you know, is if they have a, a disease of the brain, they can't remember. So you're, you could argue that all day long. It would be yeah. good. You so know, you facilitate well, the conversation. I had a really interesting conversation. This is, again, it goes back to there are things that you kind of go, I don't know how to deal with this, but I, I went on a listing consultation for a couple, and the gentleman introduced me to his wife, and we're sitting there together, and she starts talking, and she's probably, I think she was in her early 80s, and she says, um, I said, well, so where are you guys thinking about moving? And she said, well, I can't move to one of those retirement places. And I said, oh, well, what, what, for what reason do you think you can't do that? She said, well, I'm pregnant, and they won't let me have a baby there. <laughs> and I looked at him, and I looked at her, and I, wow, okay. And we're having, now we're having this full-blown conversation. I, I, he wasn't surprised at all. He had really heard the story, and I think he was looking at me to somehow help him move her through the process, but you couldn't, right? Like, I mean, that was her belief, and that's where she was. And so I just played along, and then afterward, you know, spoke with him directly, and I said, you know, maybe you could, I said, maybe you could talk the community into letting her have her baby at the community if you explain to them what's going on with her. Because you see women at senior living communities that are in memory care carrying babies frequently, right? Because that's the part of the world they're living in. So again, these are support group things that I think are so valuable. Now I want to go, I want to make sure we hit a couple more questions before we open it up for conversation. Uh, Dr. Smith, I'll let you take this first, but what about, uh, is dementia reversible? What are the treatment options right now uh, for that? And what can you tell us about, and I know Herb wanted to tap on that kind of what the Alzheimer's Association is doing for research. So. Yeah, the uh, treatment, unfortunately, there aren't any major breakthroughs. Uh, Aricept and Namenda have been kind of long-standing medications for the diagnosis of basically Alzheimer's. And the only evidence of that is that it may slow the progression down a little bit. In my experience, it hasn't really done too much, and especially Aricept, it uh, sometimes produces a lot of gastrointestinal uh, reflux and all kinds of abdominal pain issues, so you have to be careful with that drug. Namenda usually does pretty good. There's uh, a new one, it's a monoclonal antibody that's got a lot of press lately. Uh, 
it's one of the MABs, it ends in MAB, and it um, uh, was approved by a minority group of the FDA, and I think there was a lot of political influence. We don't even use it at Mercy. It's horribly expensive, and it's never been shown to work. So you have to be real careful. Things that you see on TV, like Prevagen, that doesn't work. Um, none of those things are helpful except uh, to those manufacturers. And I say that, you know, it's just, that's the society we have. It's okay, it's, we're at the truth series, and oh, yeah. so. So, so those things you have to be careful That's of. not a therapeutic fit. No. No, no, it's not. So you have to be careful on those uh, cures that you see on the internet and everybody else. Uh, the diagnosis, we've made some breakthroughs on diagnosis. Uh, there's a, a tau, TAU, uh, 217 protein that we're looking at in spinal fluid, which is the fluid that bathes the brain, and we have to do a spinal tap to measure it. But it, it's, a, it's a byproduct of the plaque, uh, the amyloid plaque that develops in uh, uh, Alzheimer's. So we, maybe there's some traces of that in the bloodstream. This is very early. We don't, you can't go to your doctor and say, hey, I need a child 217 uh, uh, test. But it, it will be available, I think, in the fairly near future. And I say that in medical terms, that's in years, not months or weeks. So just be aware that some of those things. But once that diagnosis is made, we still don't have a treatment. What about, you mentioned to me, um, plant-based diets and, and things you can do to maybe uh, help yourself stave off. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, you get me started on this. Yeah. You, Basically, I'm going to limit your time, okay, but just, I want you to because it's important. You need to bring out the hook. Yes, I'm going to bring out the hook. Yeah, okay. um, He's very yeah, passionate. It's a um, the process of diet is huge. Our our diet is not healthy for our brain, our heart, or our kidneys. Uh, basically, years ago, shown that a plant-based diet will reduce. Uh, your lipids, it reduces vascular disease, blood pressure, blood sugar, a plant-based diet. And if you can do that 80% of the time, and you really remember the diet is, if it's ever had a, if a food that you're looking at, menu, grocery store, wherever, if it's ever had a face or a mother, a face or a mother, I mean, it's animal protein, don't eat it. That's the diet. It's real simple. So if you can do that 80% of the time, you can do fish, you can do... A, baked chicken, that kind of thing. Red meat is not healthy, and that's been associated with some pretty severe disease processes that we accumulate lifelong. So the diet is huge. Um, the, the, the best resource for that is Caldwell Esselstyn. What a name, Caldwell Esselstyn at the Cleveland Clinic. And uh, Colin Campbell uh, did the China study and the book Whole, W-H-O-L-E, Whole Food. So that's diet. Then blood pressure is huge. It, if your pressure, we've found that 120 over 70 is ideal. We used to say 130 over 90, but that's very unhealthy. It produces a lot of brain vascular disease. 120 over 70. But if we've had blood pressure elevation all our life, you can't drop that all of a sudden. Because if you do with too much medicine, when you get out of the chair or out of bed, you'll get faint and fall over and break something. So you have to be very careful. Blood sugar. <coughs> Careful control of diabetes is very important. And uh, uh, your LDL, that's the lipid that, that will drop when you take your statin drug, uh, that's what you want to be 70 or below, 7-0. LDL, 7-0 or below. You do that with statin drugs and you do that with your plant-based diet. And uh, that reduces the bad cholesterol, LDL, that deposits in our arteries 
and causes rupture of the artery in the coronary, causing a heart attack, or in your brain, causing a stroke. So uh, other things like make sure your thyroid's okay, make sure your thyroid function studies are normal. If they're not, take thyroid. Uh, vitamins, we don't see vitamin deficiencies anymore, but we used to see pellagra, which was a rampant in southern uh, United States, it still is in Mexico and, and Central America, South America, because of their corn diet. They don't have much animal protein. So, but those are the main things. Diet, blood pressure, lipids, statin drugs will make you about as healthy as you can be. And so it's, it may, you can't necessarily definitively say, okay, that's gonna prevent you from getting Alzheimer's, but if you can prevent yourself from having these strokes that you discussed, right, whether you know you're having them or not, that could alleviate some of the types of dementia that you're seeing from stroke. Yeah. You can have, well, I didn't mention atrial fibrillation. I mean, it's obvious we're running out of time. Atrial fibrillation, that's, you're not on an anticoagulant. It causes little tiny strokes to your brain. You have vascular dementia from that, or big strokes from atrial fib. We, as medical director of the stroke program for nearly 20 years, I can tell you that, that that's a very common thing for us to see. So uh, those vascular issues are huge, but they're kind of silent. Can I add one thing to your list of sure. things to do? Protect your brain. If you need a walker, use a walker. Yeah. The last, we've only got one, and we gotta protect it. We, we don't know how to replace it. There's lots of bits and pieces in here that we can replace. Our brain is not one of them. So take care of your brain. Be, be very aware. Work on your balance. You know, do those foot exercises. You know, you gotta keep these feet going. You gotta keep these legs going. You gotta keep your brain safe. Keep your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids' brains safe. Always wear a helmet. It's, it's, it's a known fact. That it, you know, we see these kids, we see, you know, Sam Bradford, you know, show me two fingers, you know, after a concussion. And he's like, okay, we think, oh, he'll be fine in two weeks. He's done damage to his brain. Yeah, we're, seeing, brain. we're seeing that now, right? In the years later, the athletic athletes that are. In fact, there's some recent data that shows that uh, the blast injuries that our troops have had in the Middle East don't cause as much uh, traumatic brain damage that we thought. The number of brain damage, we, the, the incidence of brain damage is far, far greater in contact sports. It is huge. And that, that's data is just in the past few months that's come out. Okay, last question uh, for the panel, and then I'll let you guys kind of wrap up and we'll take questions from the audience. But I do want to talk about the, the idea of moving into residential care at some point. And this is usually a caregiver decision if it wasn't discussed early on. Um, Herb, I'm going to start with you because I know you had to make that tough decision uh, with you and your wife. Talk about that journey and how that was made, how that decision was made. Yeah, in the uh, younger onset support group that I was in, we were all about the same stage and we all progressed at about the same stage and we all swore. It was 10 women and me. They called themselves my sister wives. And I didn't know what that meant. I, just, I never looked it up. Should I, should I have looked it up? Anyway, so we all swore that we would never put our loved one in a community. And the reason why is we went back to our childhood when maybe with our church group, we'd go in and sing carols and, you know, it was a horrible place that stunk, that, you know, people were just laying in there. It was terrible. And that's what we had this picture of. And, you know, it's not necessarily that way in, in the modern world. But there reaches a point where the caregiver can't... 
this is, you're in the last stage of, I'll put it personally, with me. It was the last stage of the love life with me and Gail. And it wasn't going well at home because I was having to change diapers. I was having to try to get her into a shower that she didn't want to take. There, it just everything was a fight. There were there were no happy memories being made. And I finally realized when she had acute psychotic episodes, which I've never gone through that, she turned into this quiet person, or she was this quiet person that turned into one that was running around, hitting, kicking, screaming. If you were within range of her, she was going to punch you. And uh, so we did get her up to the geriatric psych ward at. Uh, up in Edmond, and uh, they had her out in three days, and they put her on a small dose of an antipsychotic, and she was back to, to the way she should be. And they, uh, I had to put her in respite care because my father had died, and I went up to Ohio to the funeral and make the arrangements. And when I got back, um, she kind of made the switch, um, and so uh, I, I left her there, but I felt really, really, really guilty. For six to nine months, I went through this guilt of, I promised I wasn't going to do this, and I did it. But then, all of a sudden, the switch hit me. I got to be the spouse. I wasn't doing all that heavy-duty caregiving lifting anymore. I could go in and feed her if I wanted to, or, or help with those kind of things. But I wasn't having to do all the rest of that stuff that just was wearing me out. So I got to go hold her hand and take her outside to the courtyard and talk to her. I got to go hold her hand and go watch TV or listen to music or just walk around. I got to be the spouse again for that last part. And that's what I tell my caregivers, you know, don't wait till the last minute to go find a community because there's gonna be waiting lists on these things. And you don't wanna, when you realize I've got to do something, you don't wanna have to do it without having that background check done. So you want to go find the places now, uh, you know, the people that, that have the disease, and feel comfortable uh, about that. You know, maybe you change your mind on, on which one, but at least you can get yourself on a waiting list. And normally with these communities, when you get on the waiting list and you get to be number one, they'll come to you and say, Herb, you know, we got a spot. Are you ready to play scale? No, I'm not. Okay, well, you stay number one. So the next time a room comes open or a spot comes open, you, you get to do it. But I'm, I'm telling you that it's a lifesaver for the caregiver. We lose, is this the time to do that? Yeah. We lose one out of every three family Alzheimer's caregivers before the loved one they're taking care of. I want you to say that again, Herb. One, one out of every three family Alzheimer's caregivers dies before the loved one they're taking care of. And it's the stress. It's what you're going through. And I, I told you before, it's the tease, that mild cognitive impairment, early stage. You say, ah, you know, I got this. But when you get to the middle stage, all your friends, family, church groups, they start isolating away because it's uncomfortable for them to talk to your loved one. And chances are, as a caregiver, that's all you're talking about. So they get tired of hearing that, and they just don't hang around. For family members, you know, kids and that, I don't remember dad that way. I, I'm not, I'm not gonna go see him. I, I, I'm just not gonna put up with that. So they end up being alone. And then the other thing is, if you're the spouse, you're taking on all of the chores that you used to have split. So, and there's things that the caregiver is not very good at. For instance, it might be the finances that they've never handled, and now they've gotta take care of all that. For me, it was the cooking. 
I don't cook, and so my cooking is terrible. I hate my cooking. The only advantage to her Alzheimer's is she didn't remember how bad the last one was, so she did the next one. It was me that had to suffer through So, and, and then the final thing is you're watching this person that you wanted to grow old with, your best friend, the person that means the most, disappear. My wife was afraid to go to sleep at night early on in, in this because she was afraid of who she wouldn't remember in the morning or what she wouldn't remember in the morning. So, you know, that's the tough part of being the caregiver. There's two victims in this. And when, when you're a doctor, you're paying attention to both the person that has the disease and the caregiver. The, we ended up going to a psychiatrist for most of, the, of ours. And he would pull me aside and spend as much time with me. How are you doing? You know, what's going on with you? Um, so, you know, please, if, if you're a caregiver, and, and, and let me back up with the one out of every three. When I got involved with the Alzheimer's Association, for 10 years now I've run support groups and I do the community education, I'm on the board of directors and all that. And for the 10 years that I've seen this, for those people, for those caregivers who came in and took our free counseling, everything we do is free, free educational programs, and there's all kinds of, there's communication, there's behaviors, there's legal, uh, there's, uh, you know, yeah, healthy living. There's, uh, you know, we do understanding Alzheimer's dementia. We know the 10 signs where we go through what normal aging and what's not. Uh, you know, we can, we can help you train to get, now she was the best at being able to train people on how to be that caregiver. It's so different to be. And then the final thing is the support groups. All of the, in the 10 years that I have done this, I've never seen us lose a caregiver, ever. That's pretty It's gotten involved wow. with those. So the support matters, yeah. Yes. Um, and when we get to the when we get to the end, I have a little presentation I'm gonna do as far as Are you gonna dress up like a pickle? Yeah, something okay. like that. <laughs> so, so, so give me a couple minutes but, at the end. Before we leave this, the Carla, I wanna make sure that this is not a shameless plug for Concordia or any specific community, but because people have been just told by her to go out and start figuring out where these places are and what they're about. Uh, you know, my experience doing what we do, helping people find places to live, I found that people sometimes look for the cheapest, the closest to home, or the prettiest, <laughs> which all may be important, but when you're looking for some place for someone with memory issues, what are some of the important questions they should be asking? <laughs> well, you want to you wanna do like Herb did uh, before he, before he he wasn't going to put Dale in a community, but he knew that the day might come, and if and when it did, he wanted to be prepared. So he did his homework, he visited the communities, he had a whole spreadsheet. Stop me if I'm lying. He had a whole spreadsheet, you know, where it was, how much it cost, what's the ratio of staff to resident, so how many caregivers do they have that are there to care for your loved one. Uh, you know, all those things. So that when and if it came time for him to put his, his lovely wife into a memory support community, he knew exactly where he wanted to put her. He knew exactly where they wanted to go. Because you really don't, moving's hard. Moving's hard on everybody, right. as we all know. I've we try to make it Exactly, so I've moved 10,000 times. I've moved next door and I've moved literally halfway around the world. They're both hard. And when you have dementia and you're the caregiver and you're worn out, 
it's hard. So do all your homework. Get it, go and go and look at the communities that are available to you. Make appointments and go see them. And also now, drop in and go see them. Well, and now with COVID uh, having been, you know, the pandemic is not over as we understand. And so there's a lot of times I'm hearing people say they won't let me come look if we aren't looking for an immediate move in. What do you say to that? I say come to Concordia. <laughs> <laughs> so we will absolutely, yes. Yeah. And we do have protocols in place. And, and Excuse me? <laughs> and, well, he, he commented, he said, bring your checkbook. I'm going to make one comment, and then we're going to uh, let you guys say the final word before we open it up. I, I have a friend, his, his wife has mentioned, he um, has been telling me that at some point he thinks he may help her transition someplace, a community. But in the meantime, he said, Nikki, can I bring somebody into my house and just have them do it? And I said, well, of course, if that's what you choose to do. And he said, you know, money's no object. And I said, and so he started looking at communities and he started doing his research and he said, Nikki, none of this is acceptable. And I, he said, money is no object. And I said, Bob, just because you have money doesn't mean what you want is available, right? So this is, this is I mean, you may have all the money in the world, but you may not find exactly what you're looking for. And so I think what I'm trying to help people understand is we only have what we have, right? Here in Oklahoma City, we only have what we have. We have some amazing places, but unfortunately the amazing places are gonna have waiting lists, like Herb said. And so if a place says, oh, we have 10 availabilities, then you need to question why they have 10 availabilities. Does that make sense? So there are things that if you've done your homework ahead of time and you go, we want to be here when the time comes, my recommendation is you get on that list and you make sure that you are prepared when they call you. And, and always go with an open mind. Uh, I, when I worked for the Alzheimer's Association, we had these sisters. So there were four sisters all together and one of them had dementia and the other three were there was her caregivers. So they pooled their money, they put her into the finest, fanciest place around, and they were not happy. She was, she was just going downhill faster. Uh, they didn't like the care. It was beautiful, but the care wasn't what they wanted. So these sisters got to work and they looked around and they found a place that was recommended to them. They pulled up to it and they're like, oh, you know, it was low brown, long, they're like, oh, this can't, this can't be. But they went in with an open mind, and it was all about the care staff. It's not about the fancy chandelier. It's about the care staff. They put their sister there. They weren't sure. They weren't sure, but they put their sister there. They monitored it. She improved. She even started speaking again. It was all about the care. She could care less about that chandelier. I'm so tired of here. I, I, you know, my pet peeve, like you do the plant-based diet, I could go down a bunny trail talking about families looking at senior communities and how pretty this one is and how pretty that one is. And I'm like, oh, pretty doesn't matter when you need care. Well, we're very proud of Concordia. We think it's beautiful. We're just so proud of it. You don't have a microphone. So we're so proud of it. But what we're especially proud of is our care staff. That is what is our shining star. So 
that's what you want to interview, that's what you want to look at, that's who you want to talk to, how Training. they do things. Don't, do don't think that there's any silly questions. Don't think that there's any questions that you shouldn't ask because you should ask every question that you want to. And you can ask it over and over and over again. That's, you're gonna, you're, you're the person that you're caring for, you're their advocate. You have to be their voice and you have to be their feet and you have to make sure that it's the right place for them and for you. Yeah. All right, final words before we open it up. Dr. Schmidt. Yeah, I might just share a personal yeah. story. When my wife and I got into our 80s, uh, we did make a move, we, we live at uh, Epworth. We have a cottage there. We just carry on our life just like we did in Quail Creek for 50 years. So it does work. And I think all, as I look around the room, we're all in our fourth quarter. We're in various <laughs> stages of our fourth quarter. If we get into our 80s, we get into the red zone. But it's important to understand about transition. Right now, we're independent. We're doing fine. The only thing I don't like is the garage, the single car garage oversized. We need two cars. Two car Other than that, it's great. But, uh, um, Men, yeah, swear. But that's important. But uh, anyway, I'm just saying that all the patients I've seen over the years, look at family history and all that, you, we're all in transition. You can't beat the clock. And if you have the initial transition when you are doing well, alert, conversant, able to function, continue your activities in the community, that's a good time to make the transition. Then, when you have further difficulties, it's pretty smooth after that. And that's the thing I would leave with you as far as retirement communities. So we brought our own furniture, brought everything. We had 2,300 square feet. We had a 4,000 square foot house. We only lived in half of it. Now, it looks the same. We've got everything we had, basically. So, FYI. Yeah. And that was a process. You guys didn't make that decision. No, it took us two years, but uh, but uh, anyway, that's that's my person, our personal experience. Herb, before want we wrap, open, want me to wrap up? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you gonna stand? Yeah, I am gonna stand. Yeah. And I'm shorter. Up. See, I told you. Okay. I'll, I'll stay seated. Yeah, please. Uh, I, uh, you know, the uh, Alzheimer's Association are really, is really my hero. You know, Carla was was there and was my hero. Uh, and you know what heroes do? Actually, superheroes do. Remember, they run into a phone booth and change their clothes and come out and save the world? So I'm gonna try that. The only problem is, you know, they took our phone booths away from us, so this doesn't work real well, so here we go. logo of the Alzheimer's Association really means because you know, it's, you know, like I said, superhero, it turned out being kind of sideways and kind of ended up being sideways and backwards. You gotta, you gotta get better at this. See, the problem is I don't have adult supervision at home anymore. <laughs> to dress me. You know? Anyway, what this is, is uh, this stands for, this is a head, an outline of a head, so it's people. It's always on the left side because people come first in our organization. And the second part is a beaker that stands for science. If we're going to beat this thing, it's going to be with science. So that's what that means when you see that funny logo. It's not just a snake or a superhero. Superman's, you know, best sideways and backwards. So. Beautiful. All right, let's open it up for questions. I'll repeat them back and then we'll pass them off to the panel. So, uh, Mr. Frazee, and then I'll get you, Betty. Yep. Can you attach a time frame 
Can you attach a time frame from the time you begin to notice symptoms to the time you pass? No. It, no. The answer is no. It's extremely variable. Depends on what's wrong. Uh, so there's no way that I know of to predict that. Betty. Oh, hang on. Oh, how long? It was uh, 11 years. Yeah, and, and you know, a lot of times this disease is long enough that something, something else takes them. You know, maybe a heart attack or infections or something like that. It, it comes in and, and jumps in and does it. Usually it's a fall. A fall. Just a fracture, hip, shoulder, whatever. That seems to precipitate the final illness. Uh, Betty? Uh, Herb, how long were you able to keep your wife at home and how long was she in so how okay. long, I am going to repeat that. Uh, we, Her, Her, let me repeat that back for the camera. So the question was, how long did his wife stay at home, and then how long was she in a community? Uh, we kind of did it early, middle, and late stage, and she was about three and a half years at home. Uh, for three and a half years, she was at home, but I still was working. And so she went to adult daycare, and of all of the three of these, that was the one that I liked the best because I got her in the evenings and the weekends and I knew during the day she was okay and not driving around, that kind of thing. And then the last three and a half years in a memory care facility. So was that her like daily living center? Or yes, was there, was that daily her? living center. Okay. I drove all the way from Edmond up to Bethany and then downtown and then back every day. Thank you. Betty, number two. <laughs> it seems as though you're staying Alzheimer's and dementia almost interchangeably. Are they, are they two distinct different problems of the brain? Are they treated yeah. the same? So are it, Alzheimer's and dementia are used synonymously a lot of times. Are they distinctly different and are they treated the same? The, they are basically under the umbrella of dementia and the Alzheimer's is a form of dementia. There's frontotemporal dementia, there's Lewy body dementia, there's several types of dementia, vascular dementia. Alzheimer's is one of those dementias that can be identified with specific uh, testing. The way I used to explain it to folks was that uh, if you went to a doctor and they said, oh my goodness, you've got cancer, well, what would your second question be? What kind? What kind? So it's the same thing. If you go to a doctor and he says, oh, you've got <coughs> dementia, that's what we mean by the umbrella. Everything else falls under the umbrella. So you've got dementia. Well, what kind? Is Lewy body dementia often associated with Parkinson's? Yes, it can be. Uh, not everybody who has Parkinson's has Lewy body dementia, but Lewy body is a form of, like, when you hear neurofibrillary, neurofibrillary tangles in the nerve cell of the brain, the Lewy body, it, gets, it makes a special identifiable abnormality in that nerve cell of the brain. It's called a Lewy body. It's a misfolded protein. And so I think the second part to our question, if I understand it, is do, they, do all of these progress similarly or differently? Uh, in my opinion, the Lewy body is a very rapidly progressive uh, form of dementia. And how rapid is that? It's variable for each person. Okay. So again, it's unknown for sure. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Good. Betty, did that cover it? Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. So let me get this one, and then uh, Chris, you had a question. I do. Okay. Yes. Actually, the heredity play a part into any of the dimensions. 
does heredity play or genetics play a part to any of these? It, it can, and I think the thing to remember is that you, I can speak for my, my family, again, a personal reference here, my father, all of his, his aunts, my grandmother, they all had severe dementia, and uh, my mother did not. So obviously I carry a genetic component to that, but you have to have the combination of, of, of genetic material to actually produce the Alzheimer's. It does not happen to everybody with a genetic or a family history. So that's the important thing. Remember, just because your parents had the disease, that doesn't mean you're going to have it. So it's, and it can be sporadic. We just have no idea why some people develop it. Well, you can get tested to find if you have the gene. And, and I've been tested, I've been through a clinical trial. I figured if I was going to talk the talk, I better walk the walk and find out what's going on. So I went through a clinical trial and uh, you can find out if you have the gene or not. And if you have the gene, you may get the disease, you may not. If you don't have the gene, you may get the disease, you may not. <laughs> I don't recommend genetic testing. It's not helpful. Yeah, I, I, I had to do it but, you know, because I wanted to be able to speak with, with knowledge. But uh, yeah, so if you do decide to go through genetic testing and all that kind of stuff, my advice to you for that would be those ducks in a row that we talked about earlier, get those things all in a row. Get your insurance all in a row before you, before do, you do that. But a lot of people don't. In do my it. experience, whether you've got the gene or not, get your a financial. Yeah, get those stuff. Right. Right. If you think yeah. it takes a long time to get an appointment with a neuropsychologist, wait till you have to go take an individual to court to get power of attorney. Not only will you spend time, but you'll have to have a brown paper sack and big bills to take care of it. It's very expensive. I asked my three children if they wanted to get tested for the gene because. Gail was the second, you know, her dad had younger onset, she had younger onset, and all three of them said no, it would, if, if we found out what it was, it would change the way we're living, and we don't want to do that, so I asked him, do you want me to get Gail tested, and we'll just seal it so that none of us know that you have it, and they said no, don't do it. Chris? So her, hindsight being 2020, would you have uh, relocated your wife sooner than you did? So now, knowing what you know now, would you have changed what you did with moving your wife when you did? Would you do it sooner or later? Into the memory care? Yeah. No. I would feel less guilty about that with it. I would understand what, that it was a positive move, and I would have tried to make it uh, the way that I did at the end rather than... And, and you know, i tell you what. One, there are things you can do in a community to make things right. The CNAs, when you're in looking at a community, you're talking to the administrators. You're not talking to the people that are going to be hands-on with your loved one. When you find out who those, those are, every time that I went in, I would find out which one was taking care of Gail, and I would go over and I would give her a hug, and I would say, uh, you know, you're spending more time with Gail than I am. You know, you're, this is the most special person in my life. I appreciate what you're doing. And I would try to find understand that what CNAs get is all of the bad. Everybody tells them what they're doing wrong. So when I was in management at, at Devon, I, my goal was to find somebody doing something right and tell them about it. Because, you know, I'd have to tell them the bad things too. So I would catch them doing something right, and I'd go over and I would applaud them for it. You know, and... 
there were three uh, that took care of Gail during those three years, and uh, they still call me up today and talk to me about how great it was. Uh, yeah, I might make one comment. The individuals that are certified nurse assistants and that sort of thing that are in take care of memory care patients or even assisted living, that's a very special group. They really, many of them, have a calling to do that. It's not an easy job, and sometimes, as Herb was saying, it's a thankless job, but they are motivated and called to do that. So you need to recognize that. That's very important. If you choose the right community, they are. That's true. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, Betty, and then I want to make sure if you guys have questions, somebody give me a shout because you're in my blind spot. So I'll get you next. Yes, Betty? I have another question. <clears throat> my mother in law had Alzheimer's, and her doctor told us that it would be better if we could to keep her at home because we, if we moved her, it would uh, be, uh, it would make her more anxious. That she would just do better if, if we could keep her at home. And we kept her as long as we could. So, can you address that about moving somebody um, out so, of their comfort zone? So, just to recap, Betty said to me when, she, when her mom had dementia, the, the doctor said keep her at home as long as you can not to disrupt her life and cause anxiousness and whatnot. And so, she's asking what, what do these folks recommend? Well, it, again, it just depends on the individual. It depends on the caregivers, and it depends on the person with the disease. And uh, keeping them at home as long as you can, if that works for your family, then that's what you should do. If you need to get outside help in, then that's what you should do. Uh, if it gets to be just too much, because it is 24-7, there's no break. As you know, there's no break. So. A lot of times, you know, like, like Herb's experience, when he, when he wanted to give the heavy lifting and the yucky stuff to the professionals so that he could be her husband, that, that was the formula for them. And that's what, that's what helped Herb. And that's what let him breathe again and appreciate Gail again and Gail to appreciate him again. And for them to just be husband and wife and him not be, you know, because it's not normal for you know, us to be changing the diapers of our spouse or we giving our spouse a bath and that kind of thing. But it's all individual and it's just what works for your family, what works for your finances, for what works for your setup. It's, it's very individual. So, you know, and I think too, Carla, you know, to your point, everybody's circumstances are different. We see a lot of couples move together, right? And what we see is the couples move together to a community where they're in independent living, even with the spouse with dementia, they get used to the environment. They go down to the memory care for activities and things like that. And so the adjustment process takes a little time, but then when that person needs to be relocated to that memory care part of the building, it's as if they've lived there for several years anyway, right? It's different if you're moving someone out of your house, you're staying in your house, and you're moving them somewhere, just them, and I think all of those circumstances have to be considered. I'm assuming you guys deal with all of that in the support groups too. I, I might yeah. add, add one thing that in answer to your question, it is true that individuals, uh, a, a single individual that would be moving with a right. husband, wife, or whatever, uh, a move does, does upset things. Out of the ordinary environment, it is a major change. But when you get to a certain point of 
impaired memory, there may be a rough transition, for a transient, very temporary, but then the individual blends right into this, the environment, the community that they've moved, been moved to. But there's a point, you know, if you can still, if the individual can take care of themselves, dress themselves, and not overwhelm the caregiver, and it works pretty well, that's fine. But if it doesn't, then you've got to make the decisions that were just been talked about. And, and we at Concordia, and I know a lot of communities in town, we offer respite stays. So respite just means a little break. So you can you can move your the person that you're caring for into a respite community stay in their memory care or their memory support area as kind of a trial stay to see how they do, to give you some rest and to see how they do moving into that environment and then you can make your decision, you know, on based on how they did then. It's it's a little hard because usually a respite stays a week or two and that's sometimes not enough time to make that complete transition into being comfortable in their new environment. But it's a start and it lets you see what it feels like to get a good night's sleep and to you know wake up and have your coffee without interruption. Yeah. So it's good for both parties, but it also lets you see just what it would be like to have them living in a memory support community. Hey, respite is a huge issue for caregivers. You've got to get you got to recharge your batteries, even if, if it's for a couple hours going to the grocery store. And, and while you guys are sitting up, Julie, yeah. can you bring me one of the lists I came unprepared? Uh, yeah, no, it's all super Yes, I wanted to ask uh, how a person was convinced a family physician, for instance, to seek neurological. So how would a family member get a doctor on board to encourage that testing be done? Yeah. yeah. Dr. Smith, how would you? Yeah, you, you should be very proactive and say, you know, here's what's going on. We want a medical neurology consultation, but it will require your primary care physician to refer because Medicare does not allow, pick up the phone, make the referral. Medicare rules say they've got to be referred and the neurologist wouldn't see the patient wouldn't be able to accept it without that referral. That's what you need to do. Be really proactive. Okay. Perfect. All right. So I think we're, we're low on time. So I see Betty's hand up there. I'm going to take the last question. And then Herb, you have something you want to go over? Okay. Yes, Betty. I just wanted to make a comment. My mother-in-law has your picture. Hang on, Miss Betty. Betty, hang on just a second. I, when you want to make a comment, I know how that, I want everybody to hear it. Yeah. Okay, my mother-in-law had dementia. I don't know exactly how old she was when she got it. She had so many grandchildren uh, that everyone took a day. She was never without any, you know, presence. She didn't become upset until they took her out of her house. When she got to the place she was going to be at, she met people that she knew. It might have been God's work, but she lived to be uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll finish on that note. That's great. Uh, Herb, you want to wrap up with your uh, thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh, when, when we got uh, on toward the end of our 11-year journey, uh, I stepped on every landmine that there was for being an Alzheimer's caregiver because it's so different than being any other kind of caregiver that I wrote down uh, 10 things that I wish I'd known the day that Gail had been diagnosed that would have made our journey easier. Uh, and uh, I uh, was asked, it was a month after Gail died and the Alzheimer's Association had their leadership summit, 
and uh, they asked me if I could give a speech, uh, a 10-minute speech. And uh, I said, man, it's kind of soon, but okay. So I did. And like I said, I had used humor a lot because if I could make Gail laugh just for that brief bit of time, uh, you know, everything was back to normal. My daughter said, well, Dad, you finally found somebody that likes dad humor. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and there were things, my daughter was 16 when she got diagnosed, so she helped with the caregiving for, for a while, too. Anyway, as a result of that speech, because I put humor into something that normally doesn't have humor, usually you just have your box of Kleenex and you, you can go out find it on YouTube and you should watch it. <laughs> it's actually very yeah, you can go to YouTube and look under Magley Alzheimer's Journey and it's out there. It's a quick 10 minute speech. Anyway, people were, were saying, wow, you had us crying and then you left us laughing. And uh, so as a result of that, I started, I was being asked to give speeches all over the country. Uh, and I did it for two years. And this is something that you need to know as caregivers, when this is over, there is this huge void in your life. Maybe you've been doing this for five or 10 years and now you have nothing. Your life is empty. So uh, I got lucky in that, you know, some people go volunteer, some people get back into their hobbies and stuff. Uh, so anyway, I spent two years with my backpack and just went around and gave speeches. I loved it. But I took the list with me and I gave it to every caregiver. I mean, thousands of these I passed out. And I said, my email's on the back of this. What I want you to do is add, delete, revise, and prioritize. We want to come up with a list that's made by people that are actually going through this, not some executive you know, with the association that's never done this or whatever, so that we can give this to the people that are behind us. It's not going to be copyrighted. It's not going to be published. Uh, it's just going to be available and we're going to give it out to everybody that we can. And so the result of that is we have 25 rules for Alzheimer's caregivers. And this is the result of when I would get Gail settled down for the night, the last thing I want to do is pick up a 300 page book on caregiving and try to weed something out of it. I wanted bullet points. And so after we had all of them figured out, then I went in and tried to write it with a little bit of humor so that people would actually read How it. can they get those herbs? So they're over here on our table, they're over on Concordia's table, and if there's not one there, pick up one of my cards uh, and I can email you a, a copy of it. Guys, can we give them a huge round of applause? <laughs> I am blessed to have you guys here. Uh, I'm going to invite you, as we adjourn in a moment, to be at the, uh, the Carla will be at the Concordia table. Herb and Dr. Smith, if time allows, will be at this table here. I noticed there's a ton of materials there that was brought by Herb for the Alzheimer's Association. Pick those up, take them with you. There should be plenty there. Uh, you have an evaluation form on your table. You have the handout and the evaluation form. Here's what I'd like for you to do. Fill out the evaluation form. Write down what you learned today, where it says, what were your insights from today? If you are leaving here and you say, I still have this question, it didn't get answered, there's a spot for that. If you'll write the question there, put your contact information at the bottom or stick your name tag on there if you're one of our regular attendees, someone will call you. We'll either, Naomi will filter those out, and either one of these guys will call you or we'll call you to get clarification on what you need and we'll give you direction. We want to be a resource, but um, I think that these guys did an amazing job and I just want to appreciate you once again. So, yeah. All right. so next month, you guys, if you guys want to go ahead and, and make your way up there as people- And, and write down Herb was funny. Herb, write down Herb was funny.
Next month, guys, next month, Tara, you're here. Say hi to our law enforcement folks in the back. She's here today, Tara, pardon. Um, we're going to be doing the truth about driving after 80, strategies for staying behind the wheel. Uh, I've had more and more people tell me, I, they say, I was told I need to stop driving when I'm 80, and I'm like, who made that up? So I want to know from people who know what we should be paying attention to, how can we stay healthy and keep driving, and so I'll see you guys next month for that topic. In the meantime, stay cool and have a blessed rest of your week.